This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me tonight to the book of James, chapter 4. And I want to pick up tonight where we left off last Wednesday night. And I hope that this particular study has been a blessing to you. We're coming up on a year in the next Wednesday night or two in this book. And uh, we still have a little ways to go. And uh, some verses we have been able to navigate kind of swiftly through, and then some uh, we have spent a couple of weeks on. And uh, last Wednesday night, we were able to get through two verses. And I want to pick up tonight with verse number 12, James chapter 4, verse number 12. And uh, we've got uh, a lot to say about these verses to come here in just a few minutes. We left last Wednesday night with the theme of talking about how it's not a good thing, a wise thing, I don't believe a godly thing to set ourselves up as a judge and jury and executioner for one another. I don't believe that that's the principle of Scripture. We talked about the moat and we talked about the beam. I want to look at verse number 12 tonight because that goes hand in hand with where we left off with verse number 11. And uh, the word says there's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? I want to mention a couple of things about this because you, you can look at it from both angles. If you say, well, we're supposed to judge people. Well, my question is, what does that accomplish? I know the scripture says you shall know them by their fruits, but, but what is the goal when you judge somebody or when you feel like you have a green light to do it, a sanction from the word of God? Yes, you can be a judge, judge them. So what do you get out of that? What, what is the end result out of that? You, do you just simply say, I don't agree with that and I wouldn't do it that way and God's wrote Ichabod on your life and you go through all of these negative aspects. I mean, what what is the harvest of judging? And I thought about that a little bit and and here's the thing. As, as with the liver and onion deal, what... There's some of us that don't like that. Some of us do, like the buttermilk deal. None in here do. Maybe some out there in the internet world does. But here's the thing. You, people are made up of all sorts of components. And if we go the route to where we believe the word of God would teach us not to judge, primarily basing uh that from Matthew 7 and other places in the scripture here, right here in this passage of scripture, who art thou that judges another? Okay, so if we look at it from the perspective, um, I'm going to refrain from judging. So I, then I ask you, and, and there's a lot of positive input that we could put on that as well. If you look at it from the perspective, no, I'm going to judge. This is wrong, okay? 
So you come up with a conclusion that's wrong. So what does that accomplish? I mean, what, what do you do? Do you take somebody and outside the gate and you stone them because they have a different opinion than you or you live a different manner of lifestyle than they or you have a different conviction preference than them. I mean, what? If you're going to say it's okay to judge and you have no reservation, you have no problem with judging people, again, I ask you, what is the goal? What is the harvest that you expect to receive from that Christian deed of judging because we all have different opinions about different things. Um, I have a very dear, dear preacher friend that uh, he could call me in the middle of the night and I'd come to his aid and help him with anything that he needed. But we, we, we have a sharp difference. And we've talked about this over lunch. We've talked about it in our offices. We've talked about it in fellowship meetings and uh, we just cannot seem to come uh, together on this subject. And I don't judge him because he has a different perspective and a different view from me on this issue. And I'm not going to judge him, but the issue is this. He strongly, passionately believes with all of his heart and soul that if someone from the community came to his church who happened to be from another denomination than his church, and they were coming and they, they loved the preaching, they loved the singing, and God so moved upon their heart, they walked out to join the church. His passion and conviction is this. Well, because you have come into our church from another denomination, and which, by the way, scripturally baptizes. We believe that there's only one scriptural mode of baptism, and that's to be immersed. So if someone comes in here that wants to be sprinkled, uh, has been sprinkled and never been scripturally baptized, then we, we require them to be immersed in the water. It's just the way that it is. So that's a given. Somebody from another denomination out in the community comes into his church. They have been previously scripturally baptized, elsewhere, saved, scripturally baptized, he has a fundamental conviction that before they can become a member of his church, he must rebaptize them in his baptistry in order to solidify the decision that they made. And I've, I strongly disagree with that. And my question to him was this. I said, what is more important, to be saved or to be baptized? And he said, well, that's a no-brainer. He said, obviously, that it, that's easy. To be saved is far more important than to be baptized, and we agree there. My question to him was, well, do you require them to be resaved to come into your church? You think about this, because if salvation is more important than baptism, which it is, and they have been saved and they come into the fellowship and they want to join your church and they have been immersed in another church of another denomination, another persuasion, which is more important? And 
there is no scriptural reason that he has for that other than a personal conviction. And I try not to make strong, overwhelming convictions in my life if I have no scripture for it. Now, I'm, I'm saying all of that to say that I'm not going to judge him because he doesn't do things like me, even though I, I believe that in this case, he's wrong. But he's a dear friend, and I love him with all of my heart. He's sound in Scripture. He has no Scripture for this. But I'm not going to judge him. What benefit? What I get out of that? What what would it do for me? How could I be edified as a Christian for judging him because he has a different conviction or he has a different take, a different mannerism than I? And so my question tonight is this, as we are studying these verses that deals directly and point blankly with this subject of judging one another, you can take the high road, so to speak, And if there are issues of differences, difference in opinion or difference in conviction, um, whatever the issue may be, you can take the high road and you say, you know what, that doesn't affect me as a believer. If it was a question of morality, obviously, you don't have to associate with people that are uh, carnal and worldly and wicked. And so here's the thing. You don't need a soapbox. You don't need a pocket full of stones. You can just quietly remove yourself from that environment. In fact, the word is clear on that. What what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness or light with darkness? So that issue ought to be resolved in itself. That ought to be a given in our faith. But again, you come down to this thing to where either you're going to remove yourself from this thing of judging people, or if you put your category to your preference of saying, well, no, I'm going to judge him. Okay, so what will you do? You say you're wrong, okay? How far do you want to take that? Well, I'm not going to have any fellowship with you, okay? So you want to get on Facebook and brand them? Okay, so, but you see how it's a vicious cycle and there is no end in it if you choose to judge someone. Now, again, I go back to the thing. The word says, you shall know them by their fruits. And certainly we we can identify through the mannerisms and the conversations of people where they're lining up. We can tell who's camping near the cross and we can tell who's following afar off, that they expose themselves. We don't have to judge it. But there are some people that are bent on this thing and and place it within uh, the realm of their Christian duty to do that. And I, I believe that the word of God clearly teaches that we shouldn't do that. In fact, I want you to look at a passage of scripture on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 5. I want you to see something. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture tonight as time permits uh, because we've got a lot of um, 
territory to cover here in these next couple of verses. But my passion and my conviction is this, and and I'm going to give you the scripture. As I said Sunday, everything I preach, I have a scripture for. When we think about God, who is the righteous judge, we have to remember that he is the sovereign ruler and judge of the universe. And here's the thing. If you're going to be somebody's judge, then what you are judging is their outward behavior. You are judging by what you see. You are judging by what you hear. You are judging by what you feel. All of these are outward manifestations. All of these are behavioral characteristics. But what you cannot see is the heart. God clearly teaches us in the word. We look on the outward, but it is God and only God who can see the heart. And because of that, it's my persuasion that that disqualifies any of us from being anybody's judge because the thing that really matters is the heart. The scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light, and this is something that you and I cannot do, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Now, we we can be overly opinionated and dominated by what we see. And I, I can remember when I was a teenager growing up many, many, many years ago. And back in those days, one of the things that uh, our church was affiliate with was a lot of youth rallies. We went to other, our youth group would go to this church, this church would come here and it would be a rotation of stuff. And uh, I, I remember I was sitting, our, our church, they gave you certain areas where to sit in. They had Bible drills, sword drills, you know what I'm talking about. And I can remember I was sitting about where Sister Debbie is one night with our church. And back in those days, I wore my hair a little longer than what I wear it now. And, and there were only three topics of sermons back in those days. Long hair, mini skirts, and holding hands and having babies. That was, that was the three-point outline. And I grew up on that stuff. I got sick of it. But I can remember that I was sitting on the second row, jumped up with the Bible open and the verse, and the, and the guy comes around and he says, sit down. He said, this long-haired brute right here will either die and go to hell or end up in jail. 
He didn't know me from Adam. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know anything about me. But my hair was a little long, and he put me into some kind of mafia category. The thing is this. You and I, we can see outward behaviors and manifestations, and we can, we can hear maybe slang or pun, or we can hear things that maybe we would say, oh, I'd never do that. We have to remind ourselves, Simon Peter disqualified himself greatly with those words. But when we set ourselves up to be a judge, that's all we're doing is casting a judgment on what we see, hear, or feel. We cannot see that heart. And only God reserves the right to bring a judgment into pure justification. None of us can do that. Only he, only God knows the facts about everything. And because we don't know all the facts, because we're not omniscient, he is, and only he is. It gives him the right to judge. But unfortunately, there are many Christians who feel that they need to help God with this because God either is not adequately doing his job or that he needs a little assistance. So we can set ourselves up to either just remove ourselves from it. You see, this is what I choose to do. If somebody's strongly manifesting a carnal lifestyle, I have to remember this. I'm just a breath away of doing what he's doing at any given moment. And I have to be careful to, to not put myself up in some holy, self-righteous element because for all have sinned. And so rather than judging, if someone were manifesting, displaying something that I just feel that was completely contrary to the scriptures, I believe my biblical responsibility to that individual it's number one to pray for them. And then maybe, how can I bear this person's burden? How, how can I help bear the load of what, what they're going through? How can I help shine the light on the path? Certainly, I would get nothing, nothing satisfactorily of judging a person. So that's what the scripture's talking about here in James chapter 4, uh, verse number 12. Who art thou that judgest another? All right, now I want you to see because James is all over the road here. He's, he's going on a lot of different subjects. He's addressing a lot, of, a lot of things and he's coming towards the end of the road and so I'm assuming that he's got a lot to get in in a short amount of time. So he's, he's taking advantage of every breath, every stroke of the pen that the Spirit of God moves him to write. And so look at verse number 13. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year 
and buy and sell and get gain. Now, what do you see missing in verse number 13? Let me read it again. Look very carefully and see if you can see what's missing. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go in to such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. That sounds like an adventurous life. It it sounds like a life that has a plan. It sounds like a life that has its ducks in the row who's crossed their T's and dotted their I's. But if you look very carefully at this verse, none of this verse includes God. It's all about self and self-gratification. Now, let me mention this. There's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with setting goals. But making plans and setting goals without God, certainly there is going to be some type of catastrophic happening around the bend. And so, yes, I, even, even in this thing of the last days and our Bible prophecy sermon series, as we believe that the Lord's return is imminent, I pray every morning, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let this be the day of your glorious appearing. And so I pray for the blessed hope. I look for the blessed hope. I, I'm, I want it to happen. I want it to happen yesterday. I hope that it happens tonight before I get home. I'm looking for that. And I think that in these last days, we should live our lives as normal. We shouldn't sell everything, get on the rooftop, fold our arms, and just wait. I don't, I don't believe the Lord would bless that. And so I do believe that in these last days, God would have us to move forward. He would have us to live our lives. He would allow us and want us to set goals and try to achieve certain things and have a plan. I I don't think that God wants us to be robotic zombies in the Christian faith. I think there's definitely scripture and and um, principle in this thing of planning, but we have to remember that in all of that, we cannot omit God. In fact, he has to be first and foremost. The scripture says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so we have to be very, very careful about that. Now I'm going to spend a little time with verse number 14, and I want you to look. This is a classic verse of Scripture. 
If you cannot quote the scripture, you certainly know the meaning of it. You've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. The Bible says, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And in this illustration of a vapor tonight, I would like you to think about your birth date and the date the word says it's appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. So we have a birth date and we have a death date unless the Lord returns first. And this vapor, I believe, can be better illustrated with the dash between the two. Your birth date, the dash, and then the death date that God has arranged or set aside or appointed for us. And when you think about that dash between the two dates, it's a blink of the eye, no matter how you look at it. In fact, I want you to think about this. And I jotted these things down tonight and see if you can identify with it. Talking about life. Because the word asks the question, what is your life? So let's think about life in general real quickly for a moment. Because life has a way of slipping through our fingers in the blink of an eye. When I was a child, I laughed and wept as time crept. When I was a youth, I dreamed and talked and time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When I grew older, time flew. At some point, we will find it passing and passing on, and then time will be gone. Like that. I want you to look at a couple of scriptures here. I'm going to give you several to contemplate tonight. I want you to look at Psalms chapter 90. Let's go there. Psalms chapter 90. And let's see if we can find verse number 10. Look at this. Let's talk about life just for a moment. What is your life? It's like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Look at this. The days of our years are three score. What, what is a score? It's 20 years. Okay. The word says the days of our years are three score years and 10. Okay. Look at this. So basically this is talking about a life that has lived for 70 years. The days of our years are three score years and 10. If by reason of strength they be four score years, 
yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So by this particular scripture, if we talk about a life generally living four score years, that person is 80 years old. Now, you know somebody that's 80, I'm sure. We just celebrated this past Sunday, Sister Laura Williams' birthday, who just turned 93. My dad just recently celebrated his 90th birthday. So God's been very good. How old was Grace? 90? 93. All right. So there are a few people among us that we know has outlived this four score thing. God's been very, very good and kind and gracious and merciful to people we know. Now look at this again. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. I want to share with you several scriptures about this thing about our years in life. Because James makes it a very important scripture, and it's one that we have not easily forgot. It's one that we know by repetition. We know that we hear it often in teaching and preaching. We think about it over and over again, so it's not a little thing. And there are several scriptures that I want to give you about this thing of life and see what the scripture says about that, about our years. The first one is found in Job chapter 8 and verse number 9. You can write these scriptures down in reference, and then you can go back and reread them later at a better time for you. But the word says, For we are but of yesterday, like a vapor, and know nothing, because our days upon earth are shadow. In Job chapter 9, verse number 25 and 29, the word says, Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away, they see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. In Job 14, let's look at there for a moment. Job chapter 14 and verses 1 through 2. Man that is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not like a vapor. Look at Psalms 39 with me. I'll try to turn there quick myself. Psalms 39, verse 4 and 5. Lord, make me to know my end and the measure of my days, all of us have an appointment. What it is, 
that I may know how to frail or that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, a vapor. Look with me in Psalms 103. Can you find that real quickly? Psalms 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourish. For the wind passeth over it like a vapor. It is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. Now look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 27. Again, just write these down. You go back and reread them at your convenience. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days. This is a, this is a very good scripture. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. And I want to read one more pertaining to this subject in the book of Ephesians. Go all the way to the New Testament quickly. Those of you that are watching, I hope that you're writing down these references as well. We're talking about, James said, life is like a vapor. We're talking about the years of our life. It appears for a little while and then vanisheth away. Ephesians 6, verse 2 and 3. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. So we understand tonight that there is scripture that talks about the fleeting moments of life from the date we're born to the date we die, the dash in between, it's just like a vapor. But again, in in Psalms chapter 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And then finally on this subject, in Psalms 91, verse 16, the Bible says, with long life will I satisfy him. And you know what? As we live, isn't that what our lives should strive to do? As born-again believers, we should live every life as quickly as it flees. And if we live 80 years, to God be the glory. That's wonderful. The Word of God put a great bouquet upon that. Talks about how we shorten our lives, how we live longer lives. But no matter what it is, I think it ought to be the goal of every one of us that when we come to the end of the way, whenever that is, that we have lived our lives to satisfy Him. And when we have satisfied Him, there is no reason for Him not to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. All right, let's go back to James 4. And uh, we may have time to get into verse number 15 somewhat 
this evening. James 4, verse 15, the Bible says, for that he ought to say, look at this very carefully, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And so when I think about this, I don't think that we should ever get to the place in our life that we forget that we are totally dependent on the Lord. There is a, there is a verse of scripture in the gospel of John chapter 15, verse number five. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. And one of the best things that I could encourage you, those of you that are watching, is this, that no matter what you do and what your plans are, how you plan your life and your activities and your goals and the things that you're trying to achieve, one of the best things that you can always do in your personal prayer time is pray that in what you do, that it's God's will. Pray for God's will. I want to give you three scriptures for this and we'll close for tonight. And I want you to see the significance and, and, the, and the bearing and the weight that the Apostle Paul put on this thing about seeking and following God's will. There are certain aspects of that I don't have time to go into tonight. There is a perfect will of God. There's a permissive will of God. But I want to talk generally tonight that every time we set a goal before us, every turn that we take, every move that we make, we ought to have the perspective of what, what God wants, if this is his will. I want you to look, first of all, in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 21. And Paul basically said this verse, in other words, in other texts, pretty much he was saying the same thing. It was, you, you will find that it, it is repetitive. And so in Acts chapter 18, verse 21, he says, but bathe them farewell saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return unto you again. He was saying, that's my goal. That's my plan. That's what I'm striving for. He said, I will return unto you again if, if God will. Look at that. <clears throat> and he sailed from Ephesus. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.